Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the Yes! Marco De Lyle. That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend all time with you just the two of us. Welcome to the Two Solitudes podcast a day late because Kevin was a little bit under the weather yesterday, so we apologize for that. Uh, how are you feeling, Kevin? Feeling better, had a good night of sleep, and was able to actually get caught up on all things soccer, and I'm actually ready for a good show today, Dwayne. All right, we do have a good show because we have Alicia Rodriguez on, uh, who, those that don't know, she's the managing editor of the Go Parade, which is a... Uh, the only Chivas USA blog that I'm aware of. Um, she's around since forever. Uh, she's one of the staples of the MLS blogosphere. People still use the term blogosphere. Ugh. Not really. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, she's been around. She's an MLS one one MLS 2.0 blogger, one of the early ones, and uh, she she joined us to sort of talk about what it feels like as an MLS fan to to have. To lose your team, basically, because that's what's happening here. That's that's put a call a spade a spade. Um, MLS is using language like mothballing, like uh, hiatus. hiatus. But really, what they're doing is they're folding Chivas USA, and uh, they're going to start a new team. So Alicia talks about it from a fan perspective, not a speculative position. There's a little bit of that in there, but it's mostly from her perspective as a fan, as a longtime fan, as a longtime loyal fan of a team that really probably didn't deserve her loyalty a lot. Yeah. Just like a certain team here in Ontario. Um, <laughs> at any rate, uh, we, we talked to her about that. Um, yeah, Kevin, let's, let's just jump in. We'll listen to that conversation with Alicia, then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about it and then uh, move on to the rest of our show. And welcome back to the Two Saltoots Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins along with Kevin Laramay. Alicia Rodriguez, the uh, managing editor of the Goat Parade, which is uh, the best, uh, maybe the only, but the best. Certainly a very good, high-quality blog for Chivas USA. has been out there for years. Alicia's been a name well-known for anyone who's followed MLS for a long time. Alicia, how are you doing today? Uh, doing pretty well, guys. Thanks for having me on. We wanted to talk about the Chivas uh, situation, and you know, first off, before we go any further, I'm just going to sincerely say I'm sorry for what's happening there. It can't be easy to be a fan, and you are a fan of this team for as long as you have been, and, and to see this coming down right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been like a ton of bricks, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, the, this team has struggled for a long time. There have been a lot of problems with how it's been managed, with you know, branding, with ownership, all that kind of thing, but to actually be faced with the uh, apparent imminent demise of the of the team is is honestly it's it's been really hard. But uh, but yeah, I mean, seems like that's the lot that that we've been cast uh, this past month. Uh, Alicia, the, let's talk about the semantics of this real briefly. Uh, you know, MLS is trying to spin it as a hiatus or a mothballing for a while. Well, they get the new ownership in place. I assume to build a new stadium somewhere in Los Angeles. Um, do you view it as a as a hiatus, or do you view it as a team folding? Uh, you know, it's a, I'm kind of on the fence right now about it. I mean, it, I think to some extent it'll depend on things that are kind of minor in the grand scheme of things, but at least as far as continuity goes, are are kind of important. Like franchise records, or you know, are the records from Chivas USA going to carry over to the new team, or is it going to be considered a completely new entity? And I think. Um, you know, that would be a shame if they were lost entirely. I mean, I understand kind of the semantics and, you know, maybe for legal reasons they need to call it a hiatus or maybe for the optics of the situation or something like that. But it would be a shame to see, you know, the players who had played for the past decade for this this club um, basically be forgotten to history entirely uh, when there's going to be a new team or a new iteration of the team coming along, hopefully at some point in the future. 
And what would you say is the feeling among supporters and the fan about the team and the rest of this season? How do you guys approach it? Well, I think for the fans who are still around, I mean, there's been a lot of alienation this year and in the past months since the uh, reports have, have first surfaced about the future of the club. Uh, for those who are still around, I think it's really just a time to kind of celebrate what's left of it. I mean, there aren't too many opportunities for fans to uh, know that their team's demise is upon them and to actually take stock of that and, and sort of see out a season. And so I think a lot of the fans are, are trying to celebrate what's left of the history. And, you know, frankly, um, just this past week, they won a game, which was really quite a surprise. And, and that was a nice surprise for the fans. And the stands were fairly full for a Chivas USA game um, to see it. And that was great to see. And, and, you know, for the people who are long-suffering, who don't get to see nearly enough wins, um, it, it was pretty special to see them win with, again, this this idea that the the club is probably going to go away for an indeterminate period of time, you know, on the horizon. Having been through this situation here in Montreal with the baseball team a decade ago, I sure. can totally understand that feeling. How would you think that you, you thought you talked about how the stats and what you would what would you do with the franchise? What would you do with the reminder? Would you Keep everything on the side? Would you keep everything reserved for maybe a return in a couple of years? What would you be, if you were the GM or the commissioner of the league, what would you do, Alicia? Well, as far as the, you know, like I said, with the records of the of Chivas USA, I, I think I would carry it over to the next team. Kind of like what happened with San Jose, um, you know, when the earthquakes moved to Houston, uh, San Jose, I think uh, the the records went back to them, so to speak, so you know, that was kind of a nice bit of continuity for that um, particular club. And I think something similar, if, if that happened with Chivas USA and then to LA2, whatever this new um, club is going to be called, you know, that would be a, a nice step. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's really a, a very difficult situation, something that, um, you know, again, has been, it's, I mean, it, it, you just get it on all sides, really, you know, from the team itself, from the league, from other fans. I mean, it's, it's just been a lot of discontent over the years. Um, I would hope that there would be efforts to really reach out to fans and, and really try and make the second go round uh, a, a success this time, because we just can't put up for this, you know, w with doing something kind of half-heartedly a, a second time around. Alicia, those, you know, it's been very easy, too easy to make, you know, I as a Toronto fan can understand this a lot as well. How It's easy to just make fun and to make kind of ignorant kind of jabs at teams when you don't know the whole situation. But I think a lot of people forget that Chivas was pretty decent in the late, in the late, uh, early part of this decade, the 09, 08, around there. Um, talk about the highlights of following this team. What, what were your personal highlights as a fan, as a Chivas USA fan? Yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they did make the playoffs for four consecutive years. And since, you know, more and more fans are, are are getting into the league every year, I think a lot of people either don't really know that or or just haven't really thought about that for a while. So, yeah, from 06 to 09, they were quite good. They finished in second place in the Supporters' Shield in 07. Um, you know, they never really had playoff success, and I think that that was something that was kind of a disappointment. And especially now looking back, since they haven't made the playoffs the last five years, you know, that, that was sort of a, a opportunity lost for, for sure. Um, you know, they, they made it to the semifinals of the U.S. Open Cup twice, um, and those were both in years where they weren't very good. And as we saw with D.C. United um, last year, they were able to win it, and they had quite possibly the worst season in MLS history. Um, you know, so, so there were some good moments. Um, Bob Bradley, a future U.S. national team head coach, you know, coached Chivas USA and, and really engineered the turnaround before leaving to, to coach the national team. Um, you know, we had some national team players come through. Uh, we even had some, at least uh, one Canadian national team player come through, and, uh, you know, who, who played with the team, in Ante Yazik and... Um, you know, there, there, there were definitely good good times. Um, I think it's just the last five years have kind of erased a lot of, of that goodwill and those those good moments, and, and that's really a shame. Uh, Kevin had sort of asked you, uh, you know, what would you do with the records and all that for a minute ago. I'm going to take it in a slightly different uh, angle on the same kind of question. You've 
uh, you've seen the good times and and the struggles of the last five years. Did can you pinpoint? I know it's hard to do, but succinctly, can you kind of pinpoint what exactly did go wrong in your mind, and and what would you maybe do different if you were part of the decision making to do in LA too? I think uh, the biggest issue is that it started from the top, and this team never really had a good investment uh, financially, uh, time-wise, you know, all that kind of thing throughout its history. I mean, it, it they were never big spenders, but they were also never quite smart enough for a sustained period to, you know, build a, a good roster on the cheap. And so uh, this lack of commitment, I think, really hurt the team. And we saw this in a big way after Jorge Vergara uh, took over complete ownership of the team in the fall of 2012. Uh, the investment in the team, I mean, went to as close to zero as, as possible. I mean, they literally had no marketing budget for two years, um, which hurt attendance, which hurt, you know, everything. I mean, it was a cascading, uh, you know, amount, uh, there, there was a, 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 a yeah, it's it, always a bad, si- a vicious rolling. cycle. Ball, yeah. Yeah, a vicious cycle. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and, and and so that kind of compounded the problems. And then, of course, there were problems with you know managing the team itself, treating it like a farm team of Chivas de Guadalajara. The last you know the last year that that he was in charge, which was not not really should be the the operating principle for a team in in uh, a first division league uh, <laughs> anywhere really. Um, you know, and I just think that the the mismanagement, the lack of of attention, the lack of investment, the lack of passion, really doomed this franchise from the start. I know a lot of people talk about you know the the brand, um, uh, personnel decisions, that sort of thing. I think there's obviously a lot of factors that contributed to what went wrong for this team. But for me, I have to pinpoint it at the very top, and and there just was never the commitment that there needed to be, and and that showed ultimately on the field and, and ultimately with, again, the, the, the apparent demise of this team. I know this is kind of an early question, way to ask it and hard to answer, but have you given any thought to if the team does go away, what you're going to do on a personal level with the blog and things like that? Yeah, I've, I've already spoken with uh, sort of my supervisors on that um, and it, at my network, and uh, we're going to continue it. Uh, it's going to probably go in some different directions, but we're going to sort of brainstorm and see what, what we can do to, to, to stay relevant and to, you know, keep doing what we're doing, but doing it in a slightly different way. Um, on a personal level, I mean, I'm not going to follow, I'm not going to root for any MLS teams uh, for the time being. Uh, I plan on, you know, most likely rooting for LA too, but obviously I want to wait and see until there's a, a team on the field and, you know, the, the, the preparations get underway in earnest before I can truly say that there's definitely going to be a, a, a second team in LA once again. Um, but, but that's my plan. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I know some fans are planning on having a secondary team that they're going to root for in the meantime, but um, while other fans are not going to root for MLS ever again at all, but um, in my case, I'm going to, you know, be a, a neutral observer and uh, hopefully I can, I can have that passion back again, you know, in a couple of years time, hopefully. I'm guessing the galaxy won't be a lot of people's, uh, First choice is the second choice then. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I think among the people who are a little more casual, um, there's actually a, a, not a large proportion, but there's a proportion of fans who come to both teams' games. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happened, um, you know, where some fans were just like, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just root for the Galaxy. But those don't tend to be the very, uh, you know, the, the really hardcore, diehard fans. They're, they're kind of the ones who just like to watch soccer. And you know what? To each his own. Fair, fair enough. All right, Alicia, I do empathize. I truly, I'm sorry this is happening because you're one of the the better MLS people out there. So I, I hope it goes well. Uh, thanks for joining us today, and uh, hopefully we'll touch base better times down the line. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on and and let me uh, vent for a little bit. I, I appreciate all the the support. It, it it means a lot to me. Anytime you need to vent, we're here for you, Alicia. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Sucker Podcast with Kevin Laramie and Dwayne Rollins. You can reach the guys on Twitter at 24th Minute and at Kevin Laramie. Or both of them at Two Solitudes Pod. Reach the guys on email. Two Solitudes Podcast at gmail.com. But especially subscribe on Stitcher Radio. Now back to the show.
And we're back. And, and thanks again to Alicia for taking the time. We recorded that interview uh, yesterday. Uh, she was gracious with her time there. Um, look, I'll, re- I'll reiterate it now. I legitimately have a lot of empathy for it. The uh-huh. Chivas USA throughout the years has made for a very easy punchline, even for us here in Toronto. And uh, it's just too easy to forget that there are people that do care about this team. And anyone who's had a team... Uh, that loves a team, you know, you can only imagine. I mean, Kevin, you had you mentioned in the interview with the Expos uh, mm-hmm. that you lost that team there a decade ago. Um, I haven't lost them yet, but I live in fear that my OHL team that I grew up watching of an arena situation might go away one day, and it will devastate me if that happens. It's the bubble balls. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I get it, and I, I empathize with it, and I think any sports fan – you know, we can put rivalries aside in cases like this, and we can put our little, you know, flipping jokes aside in cases like this. And, and even though we might recognize intellectually the need for certain things, I uh, just like with the Expos, which I said the other day, uh, we can still, you know, have legitimate, sincere empathy for the fans that do that are losing a team. But well, no, it's just sad. It's, I remember, I actually, the Expos had a big part in my heart because I had season tickets my grandmother had. So I was there 40, 50 times a summer. So I had a legitimate attachment to the team the same type of attachment Alicia seems to have with her team and you know with all the talks about the hiatus the mothballs or the terms they want to put it probably just because of legal reasons well it reminds me of you know those uh, businesses that says put it closed down and says close for renovation but actually mm. never opened up again that's what, yeah. that's what it looks like and it's kind of sad yeah it, it's absolutely um Look, it speaks to a lot of the single entityness of MLS in a way, and we that support the league tend to try and push it down in our consciousness sometimes how much it is centrally controlled. Uh, we talk well, it frustrates us, and we do talk about it. But I think when the games happen, when the balls are kicked in anger, we we tend to try and forget about this. And this is just a stark reminder that MLS, well, MLS, if it has to, it's going to make these decisions outside of market considerations. You know, it's it's. You know, an outside critic, and we know we have some NASL listeners on this, will we'll say, oh, well, if Pro-Rel was there, then Chivas would just naturally find it stayed, and Alicia wouldn't be in a situation she was losing her club. She might have to play at a lower level, but they would have naturally found their level, and those that wanted to support the team could continue. And that's true, but it's also unrealistic to the reality of what North American soccer is at this point and for the foreseeable future. Uh, so that's a non-starter conversation, but uh, I thought I'd cut it off there. Quick question for you, Dwayne. Last year when it was announced that Miami and New York would be coming to the league next season, did you anticipate something like this would happen to a club like Chivas USA? I always assumed that they would move Chivas. Uh, they became. It, it's funny how obsessed they are with having the two teams in those two markets, New York and and LA. It was like it was Don Garber's like driving ambition for to have the second team in New York for years. I don't necessarily think in a league um, like MLS that it's necessarily for the best. I know that if you go. Uh, uh, Dan Looney, the uh, blogger at the at Big Soccer, is a mm-hmm. Galaxy fan. If you read some of his stuff, he'll he wrote an article pretty critical of the idea of even having a second team in LA and suggesting that it has hurt the Galaxy. Uh, he did it in his own sort of irreverent way, but it certainly does drive the point home and drive, suggest the point home. Uh, certainly, when you look at the New York Red Bulls, one of the biggest questions people have with the NYCFC coming in is is how much that's going to hurt the Red Bulls. How possibly you could have two teams supported in one market? So. You know, we talked about the other day, uh, we talked about Chivas, whether it would make more sense to look at a Sacramento, look at a San Diego, look at a different market in, in uh, central or southern California, Sacramento is northern or central California, I don't know, I'm not familiar there, so I don't know what they'd qualify it, but certainly keep it in California so that you can keep a sort of geographical uh, footprint there, but I think that would make more sense, but they seem to be pretty set on the idea of a second LA team. Yeah, and... I always thought it odd when they announced two teams coming into the year into the, the league next year because it was already an odd amount of team, and it's always easier to have either a, a, a schedule, not necessarily balanced, but it's easier to make. It's easier to have a two conferences with the same amount of team, right? So I always thought something was going to happen, but to be fair, it, it seems like they're still missing a little bit of drawback. It seems like I'm. It's sad for the fans like Alicia that there's not more fan like her or people actually ready to fight for that team because it seems like the Expos at the end, when it takes a lot of years in limbo, at the end, everybody's tired and nobody wants to fight anymore. 
It, no, and I said that too as well. I, I, I didn't go to 40 Expo games a year, but I certainly went to one or two a year, uh, along with you know five or six Blue Jay games every year for, for most of my childhood. Uh, but by the time the Expos folded up shop, it had been so long. And, I mean, there was that extra season too with the Expos. They kind of had a year where they – they sort of everyone assumed they were going to go, and then they didn't for a year, and then they were just sort of sitting there, and everyone knew they were going at the end of that year. So it was kind of a hard thing to to see. It's got to feel a bit what Chivas games feel like right now. Um, I can only imagine. I imagine it would be you know those fans that have stuck with them. They just probably going to go enjoy a couple more Saturdays at the park. Is what they're going to do, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, We'll continue to follow that story. It's not a main story per se, but I think that it's a story that relates to anyone who's a fan of anything, and it does relate, obviously, directly to MLS, so we'll continue to follow it. Uh, moving on now, though, to uh, what could be another disaster. Uh, Canada's playing Columbia, and uh, unfortunately, I, I can only assume uh, that they meant to play Columbia University and accidentally booked Columbia, the fourth-ranked team in the world, instead. So that that's happening in New York City next week, and the roster is out. <laughs> Do you think that's the reason why they actually booked the team in New York? So in Harrison, New Jersey, to be fair, because uh, it won't get as much coverage as if it would be if in Toronto. I think it was came together at the last minute. And I'm yeah. like, jokes aside, and you know, it sort of sets itself up there with the spelling difference. <laughs> that, <laughs> and as a reminder, it's with an O, people. O, okay. Uh, at any rate, uh, that uh, yeah, it's. I think it came together at the last minute, and it was just too good to pass up. They wanted to have a doubleheader in there, and Canada is playing the role of the Washington Generals to get Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good analogy. Yeah. Um, however, it's a good opportunity for a lot of our kids, and I say that term kids purposely because this is a, an exceptionally young roster. It's sprinkled with some vets. Uh, but it is certainly a roster that that is green. Um, there Even are, the vets are kind of green, though. Like if you're talking yeah, about like the INF, yeah, you're you're looking at. There's some older guys on there, but th- this is not anything that anyone would qualify as Canada's best lineup. And that's saying something because Canada's best lineup would be in deep too. Um, <laughs> however, you never know. You, the the games played, you know, on the pitch, so we'll, we'll see. But uh, there are nine players on this roster that are on the U twenty that will be eligible for the uh, Rio Olympics. Uh, so that's, I think, a lot of the thinking here is this is an opportunity to get some of the younger players together again. It is an opportunity to get a large U twenty three group, and in some cases, a couple cases, a U twenty group together. Almost a U seventeen too with Boakai. Yeah, to uh, to get out there and to to do what needs to get done uh, to to prepare for those events, which I think offer more realistic chances to qualify. So I guess that is the question: uh, Is this an, you know? I think this is just an example of Benito Floro constantly. He said before he wants to play at every break, so he, to his credit, was out looking and looking and looking and found the opportunity and got a game in there. And we're not going to criticize anyone for getting Canada a game, uh, even if it might might turn sideways pretty quickly. And that, that's, that's hope that the Colombians are uh, somewhat merciful on that day. Yeah, well, you know what? I I think not. I hope Colombia comes out to play and show their best effort. That's what we need to show to the kids on the pitch. Sometimes it's easy to talk to the kids or the players or the young players. I don't want to be uh, condescending to the players. But it's easy to talk to them saying, look, you do things like this or like that. But to actually have somebody do with them on the pitch in front of them or against them, it's worth a ton of money and it's worth a ton of years of experience. And I really like the way Benito Floro is actually changing the way Canada takes a look at young players and builds builds up squads over the years. That group core of player, I've talked about the Young Academy for the Impact and all and the Henrys and the JGL and all those core group of players, including the Boakais and the young 923s, They'll be together until Rio, and then probably for the next cycle after that. So we're talking about a group of players that might be playing together for eight years, Dwayne. And that, we have not seen a long time thinking and planning that way in a long time. Yeah, and I think that as an observation, um, Floro is really pushing this idea of a team of making this a true team and making these guys bond and to reaching out and being part of the Canadian soccer community. I was at the uh, para soccer uh, that we featured on five rings uh, a couple weeks ago now, and he was there two or three times. He just wander in because it was part of the Canadian soccer family, the para team. So you wander in and show his support to those, those kids. Not that they're you know, obviously going to be anywhere near his radar, but in terms of just showing support as a, another team wearing red, 
He was out there front and center. Uh, Daniel Henry was there for a couple of days. Uh, Dwayne Rosario stopped in for a for a visit. They just seemed to be part more of a part of a family. We just never saw that in the past where where they were supportive of other parts of the program. And and I think that that's maybe telling in some way. And uh, hopefully it's telling in some way. I mean, we've heard rumors about certain players that are frustrated. Certainly uh, the Tybert situation is a bit troubling. Um, I've even heard rumors that, well, Johnson was not all that enamored with the, with the current regime, and that was one of the reasons why he was pulling out uh, for the last couple. Of course, that's off the table for the next six months anyway. But um, I've heard rumors like that. But all in all, the players that are playing under him, seemed to legitimately as almost a grandfatherly kind of because of the age difference because he's a very young man i think that's kind of like the the sort of philosophy sort of interaction that the dynamics sort of trying to spit out that he has with them and uh, that's not necessarily the worst thing when you know that you're going to have a team that's that's going to go up and down one of the greatest weaknesses of the team in the past has been sort of their mental fragility and and maybe having um, a calming influence like floro and i think that's what he is uh is something that that will help in that way when we're talking about building something, if it's a team or anything else, at the base, it needs to be strong. It wasn't for the last decade. It was a shattered pyramid. You could but right now, Benito Flores is actually rebuilding the base. He is not the man who's going to take the team to the top of that pyramid. But he is the one who built that base. And that's what he's here for. He's not going to be there for the next two, three cycles. Even though that's the planning he's doing. He's actually restructuring, re rethinking the way that we should do things as an association. And yes, it might alienate some players that might think that they don't have to prove themselves anymore, and that's where they're wrong. That's why the base needs to be rebuilt. And moving forward, I don't mind if the Tybert or the Johnsons are not there. We're not talking about the next four years. We're talking about the next eight years if we actually want to achieve something of significance. So, like I was saying, Benito Floro is the one for rebuilding the base. He might not bring us to the World Cup Championship ever, and that's not what he's there for. And that's how we have to look at it, too. Yeah, and if he can get them playing every month, uh, you know, during the season, then then that's going to be an accomplishment based on before. I, I, I used to have it on the old, uh, on the 24th Minute site. Mm-hmm. I used to have, I had a conversation with Stephen Hart the day he was, uh, he was in, hired. And he said to me that day that he pledged that Canada would play, and I believe it was 80% of all FIFA dates. And so I actually had it, and then I had the president of the CSA back up that, yes, he would support him in that. So I, I tracked it on whether they were going to meet that pledge. Uh, and unfortunately, I lost that tracker when we moved to the other site. But they were uh, not quite at that rate. They were more like 66%, which had still been better than the past. But but I, I would think that Flora, one of his goals to play, to just have this team play, it seems simple, but it hasn't always been simple in the past. <laughs> Uh, is if he can meet that over the next year and get them ready to be competitive at the Gold Cup, then I think I'm going to be happy. I have, you know, reiterated, my expectations for this team are that they be competitive, that they get out and show a true effort. And if they lose because they're not good enough, I I can accept that already. Um, obviously, I'm not going to like it at the time, but I'm not going to be angry at them. But if they don't show a true effort, if they don't aren't fully prepared, then I'm going to be critical of this team. And so far, I think they're showing a true effort, and I'm con- get behind them in this rebuilding effort. No, I agree, because when a team shows true effort, at least you know where you stand and you know what to do going forward. When a team just shows up one or half the time, or like it, it's not that it's their fault, but when they're not playing enough, you don't get the true assessment of where you are to do the right corrective, to the right adjustment, to actually better yourselves. So I agree. And if Floro is right, if they play like majority of the international break, it can only be good for to create an actual team like we were saying. All right. That game is going to be on Sportsnet, probably world, sportsnet.ca as well. I've heard it's going to be streamed, so it should be available for most Canadians to watch. Uh, we'll certainly follow it closely and uh, probably do a wrap-up show after it ends. I'm going to move on now and talk a little bit about uh, League One Ontario. It wrapped up this uh, this past week. Well, it hasn't wrapped up yet, but it's uh, champion was crowned this week. Mm-hmm. So we offer our sincere congratulations to a Toronto FC team is a champion. The Toronto FC Academy, the champion of League One, undefeated in the regular season. They were really, truly the dominant team, fully deserving for the of the regular season title. There is uh, all the cup to play for still, so they can still go for the double. They have advanced to the semifinals, which will take place October 16th. The finals will take place October 19th. Those finals will be held at Beale Field. So TFC Academy uh, striving to be 
playing on the same pitch that their senior team plays to finish their season off in style with a double championship in League One Ontario. And Kevin, there's a little bit of other news. And yeah, uh, I was going to say there might be a treble. Who knows? Yeah, there there is. A, I confirmed today that there are talks going on uh, between the PLSQ and uh, League One Ontario to hold. Um, they they kind of said a, a championship game or a cup game there, and what the title it's, it's a super cup, right? Super cup, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So it's a bit of an exhibition, but you can bet that the players would be amped for it. So trust me, there's already rumbling amongst the supporters. I've been asked the last couple of days. So as Captain Soccer, the blogger in chief from the Soccer Federation of Quebec, Judevic uh, Martin. He's been asked on Twitter many times lately if the PLSQ were going to face a League One champion. There's been a following of League One in Quebec too. People really have been watching for it. And FC Gatineau, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, are the winner of the PLSQ. Who knows? It could be a really good match against uh, the TFC Academy. And TD, TD Place would uh, would yeah. make a perfect setting for that, I would think. Um, yeah, TFC Academy would uh, certainly raise the interest in a lot in Quebec to have that TFC uh, name on there as someone to, to aim against, I would think. Mm-hmm. All right, um, that's our update there. We'll uh, we'll give an update, too, with the cup final. I'll be at those the cup semifinals and the finals. I followed TFC Academy all year. I uh, certainly will be there uh, covering it for uh, Canadian Soccer News, and we'll wrap it up on this show as well. On a slightly less positive note, I wanted to up to a story broke today. Uh, it's been rumbling over the weekend uh, of a court decision that happened in Ontario this week that I'm going to have to talk about. God, we talk about the courts a lot. Uh, yeah, it's been becoming a very litigious kind of soccer show. I'm learning, yeah, I should have went to law school. Well, there's yeah. a problem with going to law school is it's law school. I and could it's have like been a lawyer. dollars for 10 years? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I didn't have to go to law school, I would have been a great lawyer. Um, Just watch anyway. Matlock. Just one yeah. back on a loop and you'll be fine. Law and order repeats. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jerry Orbach. How <laughs> At any rate, um, there's a bit of a contentious thing that's happening in, uh, attached to the Canadian uh, Youth Soccer Championships which are taking place in Newfoundland. Uh, the Ontario representative at the U16 boys level is going to be uh, West Toronto. Uh, West Toronto uh, won that right to compete in the courtroom, not on the playing field. Now, this gets a little complicated because the way that they, the team that did win it on the playing field is Woodbridge. Woodbridge uh, defeated North Mississauga in the championship game. However, they got there by beating West Toronto in the boardroom, not on the field. So there's a lot of technicality stuff going on here. Uh, Woodbridge has is very upset that West Toronto is taking the spot that they are uh, that they say that they earned rightfully on the pitch. Uh, they made a protest against West Toronto after West Toronto beat them in the semifinal to one uh, that they had used an ineligible player. The OSA had ruled in their favor, uh, thus allowing Woodbridge to advance to the final, where they then beat North Mississauga. Uh, West Toronto appealed that at the court level and won the court level appeal. They hired a very famous lawyer, uh, uh, Tim Danson, who's a very famous lawyer in Ontario, very big money behind this appeal. But at any rate, I don't know where the money's coming from, but that's another topic. Um they, they they won the appeal there, so they will advance to the championship game, or to the, world, to the Canadian championships, which are taking place in Newfoundland, as I said. Big mess. Uh, a lot of adults arguing about kids, and it sort of seems uncomfortable that way. It's sad when the kids are held up, literally, in court to see if they're going to play or not, if they're champions or not. Results of games should be played on the pitch no matter what. That's my opinion. Of course, there's some... But you know what? Uh... It's it's sad that those the end of the season for those two three teams implicated is just turned out to be a mess. Yeah, yeah, North Toronto is the only team not seeming to take this to the court, or North Mississauga is the only team that not seemingly be taking this to the court right now. But at any rate, um, just as quick, I'll wrap it up. I don't want too much into it because I'm getting information from a couple different sides here, and I don't want to discount anything I'm hearing. But I just haven't been able to verify 100 percent anything I'm hearing either. So I hope people that are, that are familiar with this case understand that. So I'm not trying to take sides. Um, I've been told that Woodbridge, uh, that they're very upset with this decision. They feel that the OSA is being spineless, basically. There was a quote in the Toronto Star that, that was blaming the OSA for following the court order, which I think is a little unfair because it's a court order, people. Uh, they can't ignore a court order. They'd be in contempt of court, and they could be legally held responsible for that, and that's that doesn't seem like something that's that's you know worth it i mean they can be empathized with uh with woodbridge but ultimately if the courts are telling them they have to do something then they have to do it otherwise they're in contempt as i said um 
I've heard that Woodbridge is planning to protest the tournament, that they're planning to fly people to Newfoundland again. It would be nice to use some of this money you're spending to fly people to Newfoundland to protest or to hire high-profile lawyers to develop kids more. Just my two cents. Um, They're planning to fly out there to protest. I've heard that they're even threatening to – there's – this all this is a very complicated story, but so I'm not going to get into it in depth here. But there's the, I'm even hearing rumors that Woodbridge may pull out and go into a uh, an outlaw league that has spun off in reaction to the uh, Ontario Premier Development League. Uh, they don't like the standards that are in there. They don't agree with some of the decisions that have been made. So this group, this outlaw group, is spun and is an unsanctioned league that's out there. It's just a big blood as always it is with Canadian soccer and as always as an outsider that's hearing this from both sides just want to take them both in a room and shake them that's kind of what it gets down to get your head out of your ass and do what's right for the kids and forming outlaw leagues and protesting in Newfoundland and spending money on big lawyers and all that sort of good stuff that's not good for the kids it's not what the sport's about I, I know that you're angry and I know that you're frustrated and I know that you feel that you've been hard done by but for God's sakes Think about the kids for once. There's my message, and that's that's not taking any side. That's to every side here. Would somebody please think about the kids? <laughs> Maybe we could find the uh, old Simpsons bumper to put in there. But at any rate, uh, all right, speaking of bumpers. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? Come on. Let's talk about Turf. Let's talk about Turf. 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 Yeah. Okay, uh, that's turf. Let's talk about turf, Kevin. Let's talk about turf, baby. Come on, yeah. Yeah. I'm sick of talking about turf because not the actual turf that we always talk about. Now it's becoming really a court order, court. It's becoming a court drama. Yeah, I have really become familiar with uh, legal terms in the last week. I'm doing a lot of reading on it. Um, I'm not going to give a big update today because there's not much moving on other than I have spoke to a couple more lawyers um, to try and find a more balanced sort of perspective on this. I, I, I have promised that I wouldn't reveal the lawyer's name until after the, all the documents are out that I spoke to the other day. So I'm not going to, but I – well, he will be part of a story that, that I will put out once the full documentation is out there. Um, however, the general message that I that I got from the conversation that I had, and this was a, I can say that it's a fairly well versed person in the in the case, is that really the only way, and I, we've talked about this before, but it's reiterating our point. The only way that the women can win this case is if they prove that the surface is inferior. That you know, any if you look at the tribunal's decision, this general unfairness idea which, you know, we could all agree that it's probably a little unfair that the CSA and FIFA are making the women play on turf, but unfairness is not does not equate to inequality. Uh, that was backed up to me as a legal opinion by lawyers that I spoke to this week. Uh, so it really comes down to whether they can prove that the surface is inferior. So what the message I got was if the surface is proven to be inferior, then yes, they will have a clear discrimination case if the surface is not proved to be inferior and they have a very high threshold of proof here. Uh, that's the other point that was stressed to me, that they're, it's, it's not about like one research article. They are going to do a full literature search. They are going to have to absolutely prove without a doubt uh, wow. that this is inferior. So it's going to be very tough for the women to do this. Um, it would be equally tough for the for the CSA to prove that it isn't uh, inferior, of course. So that let's be honest about that. Uh, but it's going to come down to that. They're going to have to have a very strong threshold of proof. And that's what was stressed to me. Um, I wrote an article yesterday on Canadian Soccer News that I will link. Uh, well, I've already linked it out on the 24th Minute account, but I'll do it again on Two Solitudes Alone, um, which details details kind of what I just said today. And it also uh, lists six different articles, scholarly articles, uh, in independent scholar-reviewed, not associated with the turf industry in any way, that have come out since 2010, which is roughly when they started to test 3G turf as opposed to the 1G or 2G turf. And all six of those articles that I point to, and they were the only six I found. If anyone has different ones out there, please send them to me. I want to read them. Even if, they, they, even if they're in opposition saying on here and how I think, I want to be fully informed. If you find any more that they go against these, then let me know. But anyway, the six of them all basically concluded that there was no uh, difference. There was no difference in injuries between turf and 3G turf and uh and grass. There was a difference in 2G turf and in 1G turf, but we're not talking about that anymore. That's we're talking about 2G turf would have stopped being installed around 2007. 
uh, 1G turf would have stopped being installed in the 90s. So we're not talking about that anymore. We're talking about 3G turf, which is what uh, the World Cup will be played on. Yeah, and again, it's just uh, to debate on who's right, who's wrong. Nobody's right, nobody's wrong. It's just a controversy to... I'm surprised that it got the amount of traction lately than it had because we've been talking about this issue for the last, what, two months almost on this show? And for the last week, people actually can pick picked up on it now. And it's yeah, kind it's, of... Now they have the audience that they wanted and it took them, what, three deadlines? And finally, they have the audience that they wanted. Yeah, and it, as we said many times before, the time for this conversation was 2011, not now. The, you know, the other thing, procedurally speaking... Um, I think it's important to know that the tribunal, the, the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, which is where they filed this, you can't appeal decisions there. So uh, if the women lose this case, it's done. They can only, if they, if more evidence surfaces, they can then apply to the tribunal to have it reheard. But you can't actually appeal the decision. Um, that's an important distinction. Uh, if it is found, if the CSA and FIFA are found. Let's forget FIFA for a second. FIFA, jurisdictionally speaking, is not going to be on this complaint when it when it's finally heard. That's that's a non-starter. It truly is. Um, if the CSA is found to be in discrimination, then there still is some recourse with the CSA because the the tribunal doesn't have enforcement powers. They have exactly. well, they do and they don't. They they have like their their decisions must be followed. However. The tribunal doesn't have an arm of it that enforces. Basically, they're relying on the good faith yeah. of those that are found guilty to to do what they told them to do. And if not, then those that were found to be discriminated again then have the recourse to take it to the Ontario Supreme Court. We're talking years that that would take to, to work out in the wash, right? So in Lehman terms, they can decide that turf might not work. But to actually put in effect, it's not going to stop the tournament from happening on turf, even if they decided that it's uh, 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 you, human. Yeah, exactly. Discrimination. Even if they decided it's discrimination, they cannot even stop the tournament from happening if the CSA and FIFA decide to go on with it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The CSA could ignore the order and, you know, they could be uh, – the order could be just to throw numbers out. Maybe they're found to have to pay each woman five thousand dollars and to install grass turfs. That could be the finding. But this you say could then just say, Okay, well we'll pay them five thousand dollars but we can't install grass turfs and play the tournament. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe the women would then take them back to court and get further um Money. You know, compensation for that. But really when you look at the time frames of a court order and how long they're going to take to get the case heard there's no reasonable chance that they would ever get that enforced the only way it's enforceable is if the csa on its own decides to enforce it if they're found to that they need to that that's you know it's kind of bad faith if they do that i'll not i'm not arguing for that i'm not arguing that that's ethically right i'm just saying that realistically speaking that if if this tournament wants to be played on turf and fifa and the csa have been clear that they're going to play this tournament on turf there is no plan b then it's going to be played on turf there's just no way it's not the only thing at question is whether the women are going to win this moral victory this ethical victory i guess that they can then point to and use for their events. That's what we're talking about. His 2015, it's done. It's going to be on grass. Or it's going to be on turf. It's not going to be on grass. Yep, but I don't think we're done hearing about it, though. No, even if they're found, even even if the women's case is thrown out, there's they're going to probably argue. I can anticipate that it was thrown out on on a technicality because it might get thrown out on a jurisdiction uh, issue, which in, in you know you can argue that technicality then is still relevant, but it it would be argued that way. So even if they're found. Even if the found the case is found uh, to be to not discrimination, I'm sure that you're still going to have a lot of people that are going to make them. and that maybe is the worst decision of all. Like I've given this a lot of thought, Kevin, and, and even though I think from having read this, I can see several different ways that that the case can be thrown out for jurisdiction, for procedural reasons, for technical reasons, that I think it's in the CSA's best interest that it get a full hearing, that it goes to the full hearing, that it's not thrown out at the preliminary stage, because I think that they need a clear decision that shows that turf isn't more dangerous for them to um, morally continue forward without having, without losing something to do with the tournament, without losing some of the zing of the tournament. Because it's going to be the turf tournament unless they have a decision that says, I know that's a perception, but here's the proof that says that they're wrong. And not just that, the whole procedures that those players are actually making might actually have the result of proving that turf 
is equal or who knows, maybe a little better than grass. So the exact opposite of what it wanted to do might be achieved with the whole doing. Yeah, well, that's the title of the article I wrote yesterday. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the turf, turf gates gamble, how they might, those that despise the turf may end up legitimizing it. It's like the ironic lawsuit. It's not a lawsuit, but let's not get into that right now. <laughs> All right, uh, let's take a quick break. Come back. We'll wrap up the Canadian MLS and NASL uh, play this week. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast on Stitcher Radio with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramie. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio, Stitcher Radio. Would you just please subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio? Thank you very much for subscribing to the show. And now, back to the show on Stitcher Radio. Coming soon on Stitcher Radio. And we're back, and uh, let's talk about the, the playing field for a little while. Kevin, how's that sound? Do we have to? <laughs> do you want to talk more legalese? <laughs> no, but do we have to talk about what happened on the field? We could talk about, like, so much more things that are more interesting than talking about the 0-0 result from Montreal and Chicago. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful uh, sort of uh, native Canadian uh, summer day here in Toronto. We could talk about the weather. Yeah, it's rainy here, so uh, maybe not. Uh, okay, all right. Um <laughs> We're going to talk about DeVille a bit. You have uh, Kevin's got some down from, from the DeVille press conference that we're going to run. Um, you know, in terms of the nil-nil, uh, we might as well start with Montreal, I guess. I mean, there's not much to say. Chicago, nope. they draw everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> and this just was a game between two teams that aren't going anywhere in the, in the MLS season, uh, playing the playing, playing the string out. But uh, The two worst coaches, the new coach additions in the league this season, Montreal with Klopas and Yallop in Chicago. And we see where that led them, 9th and 10th in the East, so, and 0-0. That tells you all you need to know from that match. Imagine yourself a boring 0-0 match against the two bottom dwellers in the Eastern Conference. Imagine it. That's exactly what it looked like. Yeah. yeah. Um, we talked about DeVille in our special podcast on Friday, so we're not going to go into great detail with him here. Uh, I guess, Kevin, what we can do maybe now is we'll run the sound of the press conference and... Uh, uh, let let Devio uh, use his use his own words to say goodbye, and then uh, then we'll move on and talk about the the rest of Canada. How's that sound? Sure. Just before we move on to the press conference, there was a Nick Sabetti article on Sportsnet.ca that uh, landed a couple of hours ago that talks about Devio's legacy and more of the way he moved on the pitch and how it's important to show youngsters the way. The, go watch the films, or if you were there, remember when. How the way he moved, he brought a different type of striker movement to the league. And he's been imitating since he came in the league uh, two years ago. But the actual movement that they had, he was a notch above everybody else. And it took not him, but his teammates six months to adjust to the way he moved. And we saw the the offsides in the first six months it was crazy because his teammates were not used to his rhythm, his f- speed, his pace when he's actually doing that onside, offside type of striker movement. But he brought a different type of flair to a striker position, a different type of play. And I think that's important going forward, that that brings him one of the most important strikers in MLS history, in my opinion, because he brought a different type of style that we would see continue to be applied in the Major League Soccer pitches from now on. Yeah, we tease impact about their their Italian sort of movement sometimes or Italian sort of uh, focus uh, but certainly um, DeVaio as an Italian striker coming in with Italian style and Italian training brought a sort of different dynamic to MLS there hasn't been a lot of Italian big name players that have come through MLS prior to him so uh, it certainly is a different kind of look so that let's take a quick listen to what uh, what Marco DeVaio had to say in his uh, retirement press conference then we'll come back and wrap the rest up I understood yesterday when I spoke with Joey, uh, we had a meeting uh, with Joey and uh, when I came back to my house uh, and I understood that it's the right moment, is a, I, I can't come back and, uh, and so with uh, my decision and so yesterday was a little bit sad for me because uh, it's done and so but uh, I lived a lot of time, uh, a lot of moment here, really important for for me, for the club, for the for the history, because we we won two Canadian Cup, we won uh, we arrived in the in the series. We 
we go through to the quarterfinal in the Champions League. We are in the eighth best team in the in the, the Champions League, Concacaf, and so yeah, I'm really happy what we've done right now. Well, I mean, like Marco said in, in, in French, I mean, there's a lot of different moments, whether it's the goals he scored or even the first day that he came to Montreal and, and, and saw um, saw the fans at the airport uh, and the fans that were cheering him on. So there's a, there's a lot of emotions. Um, uh, again, um, Marco goes beyond the, the soccer player. There's Marco the person, there's Marco the family man, um, and there's that sens sensitive side of Marco that you, you, you really... Um, you really get to love, and and I think that uh, um, you know taking a look at that aspect of it, it's going to be difficult to see him leave because uh, he's uh, again he's not only been a great player but he's um, you know he's become a, he's become a friend so it's uh, it's going to be tough. And welcome back. And uh, Marco Devaio had a great legacy in this league. Uh, I think even those of us who didn't support the impact can can recognize uh, what he brought, especially last year. But uh, we're going to move on now. Um, see how he does there. Certainly, we're going to have a big big chance to say goodbye to him here in Toronto. Two thousand traveling fans, I hear. Yeah, close to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. that that's what's in the book. So we'll see if it actually happens. But that's what's been planned many months ago. All right. Uh, let's talk about TFC then at this point in time. Uh, actually, before we do that, let's, let's wrap the NSL up. Um, forgive me. Uh, Ottawa, both are 1-1 draws for, for everyone today. Ottawa played San Antonio. Edmonton played Tampa Bay. Uh, I think that's a decent result for the Fury. Uh, they're not realistically in any kind of playoff chase. They're just trying to build for next year at this point in time. Um, I think to get a 1-1 result against a good team like San Antonio is, is something that they certainly can hold their hat to and uh, be happy with and uh, move forward from there. Uh, Edmonton is, has, to their credit, pulled themselves back into a playoff race, albeit they're kind of on a thin uh, thin thread right now in terms of holding on to it. The 1-1 draw with Tampa Bay, which was in Florida, uh, kept both teams in it and knocked both teams back a bit. Uh, Edmonton is in sixth and Tampa Bay is in seventh. Edmonton's on 28 points, Tampa Bay's on 27th points. They're all chasing Carolina for the final playoff spot, which is at 33 points. Edmonton has a big match with Carolina that is an absolute must win. Um, obviously, they're five points back at this point in time, so they're going to need to win that and hope that Carolina drops some points somewhere along the line. Um, but uh, but all in all, I think Edmonton deserves the credit for just becoming a, a team that you that as long as they can't lose, as long as they can keep some of that core together and build on what they've done this year, that Colin Miller and the rest uh, should be right there uh, in the race next year. Yeah, and we're absolutely, and we're seeing some of the players like the Edson Bolkai actually getting a look now with the Canadian men's national team. Uh, and it's almost, it's very interesting the timing because same thing happened in the states too. A Division two player is on the cusp of making uh, the friendly. It might Miguel Ibarra with Minnesota, and Henson Boyguy just got called up for this game. We'll see what happens with that. But it's great that at least the future seems bright in both the NASL teams. That the academy structure that was changed uh, a couple months ago in, in Ottawa and in Edmonton seems to be working pretty good. So I see good things ahead for both teams. Yeah, and their academy structure is amongst the, the absolutely in terms of their plans. If they come together, will make them the the cream of the crop when it comes to the academies within ASL. And uh, that that's the same as the the MLS teams. Their academies in the Canadian side of things are are by and large better than the American academies. And there's a lot of different reasons behind that. And maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll bring our friend Travis Clark back on again and have another academy talk later on. But uh, certainly, there's a lot of interest there that I think that uh, that that we can build upon. Um, moving back to TFC, <laughs> speaking of building upon, first off, <laughs> Jermaine Defoe, he saw the pitch again. <laughs> Hallelujah. We, I didn't think that we was, I would see that this season, to be fair, it did not look like it a month ago when we did the big bloody match show. Uh, I didn't think that we would see Defoe again in Toronto. Yeah, well, we haven't seen him in Toronto yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I, uh, I, I had someone speculate uh, the other day, that the Defoe basically was coming back just to play the LA game, and then he was going to bugger on back to Toronto or back to the UK. I don't think that's the case. Um, look, he's not match fit yet. 
It was interesting when you looked at the lineup that Toronto put out in that game. Uh, it, it was like they just gave it up to L.A. right from the get-go. Like Kyle Becker started. Like, you know, Defoe didn't start. They didn't start Gilberto. Boy, he wasn't available. Gilberto wasn't. So they were in tough from the get-go, and a lot of it had to do with the lineup. It was like they just knew that they didn't have a chance against the Galaxy, and they were putting all of their sort of pieces together to play Houston on Wednesday night. And what is an absolute, you know, I, I think that the... The cl- the cliche must win is pretty much bang on with this one. That they need three points on Wednesday. The famous six point game. Yeah, they that a win against Wednesday would pretty much eliminate Houston too. Yeah. Um, I, I think realistically speaking, if you look at the way the playoff race comes, actually, Kevin, that that's that that's save our playoff talk until after we have a special thing there. But uh, um, if you look at the way Toronto approached the game. Uh, I think it speaks volumes to where TFC is at this point. Are they a playoff team? They're a team that should be in the Eastern playoffs. Whether they get there or not is a different question, but they should be. Are they a championship contending team yet? I think we saw the answer on Saturday, and that's the difference. And that's really we, – we have PTSD here in, here in Toronto. Uh, our expectations are way too low because of that. The amount of money that was spent on this team – the amount of resources that this team has, they shouldn't just be scraping into the playoffs to play a one-off play-in game. Uh, they should be championship-contending teams. And, and the inability to compete with L.A. on Saturday sort of illustrated to me, even though I didn't need it illustrated. I kind of knew already. But it illustrated to anyone who didn't know, TFC's not at a championship-contending level yet. And, and that's something that shouldn't be accepted much longer here in Toronto. True. True. Do you think we're going to see... Example, they don't make the playoff. Will we see an outcry? Oh, you can see an outcry regardless. This is Toronto. Okay. <laughs> I mean, everyone makes fun of Toronto that thinks that, oh, they're just the hopelessly optimistic Leafs fans out there. That doesn't exist. There, there's no optimistic is, Leafs fans. That doesn't this, exist, yeah. This market is incredibly negative. <laughs> they think everything's wrong all the time. It's one of the problems in the market. They booed Larry Murphy out of town. I don't know where this idea that Toronto is like this hopelessly naive, optimistic market. It does That fan is not there <laughs> at any rate. All right, Kevin, uh, we're debuting a, a, debuting a new few now. It's the, um, well, I'll just let the, uh, the feature debut for itself, okay? Yep. Welcome to the super awesome fun TFC Playoff Push. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything With Dwayne Rowland. Yeah, they, they lost 3-0 to LA, and uh, that kind of put them in six still. Uh, you know, Philadelphia lost, so that's good. Uh, yeah, Columbus, we gotta got to have to cheer for the crew or cheer against the crew. It's very confusing, the TFC ride to the playoffs. Basically, they just need to win, Kevin. They just need to win games. And that, Kevin, is your TFC super awesome, fun drive to the playoffs report. You know, I've, I have to say there's a comic strip by... Uh... Another podcast that exists uh, on Red Nation Online, whatever. Uh, good, former uh, colleagues of mine, good people. Uh, that said that it's funny how TFC showing ways to win without winning lately. <laughs> I thought that was actually pretty funny. Exactly. TFC is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> at least if you're going to be bad, you got to be amusing. And TFC has, has consistently been amusing over the years. <laughs> and if you're including Montreal or Toronto, it never was a dull moment in Canadian soccer. Yeah, the Canadian teams are the are the laugh track of MLS <laughs> some days. Yeah, this season, especially in Montreal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's Vancouver. talk. Vancouver. Vancouver, who now leads the race to the Champions League, the crawl, the turtle race to the Champions League spot. Uh, the Whitecaps uh, burst back ahead of TFC on that front again, although TFC has a tiebreaker, so if they win the game in hand, they'll, break, they'll reclaim it. Uh, with a 2-0 win over Dallas, it was a very good win. I watched that game uh, full measure to the Whitecaps. Uh, they showed everything that they, they they show when they're at home. They're a very good home team. Um, they need to get a they need to get the fourth spot, and they're not going to get the fourth spot because the Vancouver's going to have to travel on the road, and they're nowhere near as good on the road. So this is really kind of one of those battles for for one game again in my mind. And most most experts understand that uh, if they do make the playoffs. And if Will Johnson out, I think you have with Portland, of course. I think you have to look at the Whitecaps as being favored to capture that playoff spot. I have a question for you, Dwayne. The Cascadia yes. Cup more important than the MLS Cup? The what cup? <laughs> you heard me right. Okay. Uh, look, 
God love the Cascadia Cup. And the, the Whitecaps are still, they, they, for those that don't know, which would represent 95% of, of MLS fans, uh, Vancouver is the defending Cascadia Cup champions. For those that don't know what the Cascadia Cup is, which is probably 90% of MLS fans, it's a three-team round-robin competition between the Portland uh, Timbers, the uh, uh, Vancouver Whitecaps, and the, the Seattle Sounders, where they the, the fans, it's a fan-driven event, which really has no bearing on anyone's life outside of Cascadia, which Cascadia is, I was about to say fake, and they'll track me down if I say that. It's a non-political jurisdiction that exists in the minds of certain people that are soccer fans in, <laughs> in the Northwest, at any rate. Oh. Um they created this cup a few years ago, and I'm not going to look down my nose at, at supporter-driven created cups. The Voyagers Cup for years was one. This is almost the exact same concept as the Voyagers Cup. It's uh, they take the, uh, the the results of the games that they play in the regular season, and they award a cup to whoever got the most points amongst the three teams in the games with the three teams. So uh, they take pride in it, and it, it's you know I'm glad that they do that. It's just not something that matters to us. But I, I actually have heard some it's in Vancouver, which are legitimately debating whether this winning the Cascadia which is tough to say fast when you're trying to podcast winning the Cascadia Cup is more important than making the MLS playoffs can I answer that question Kevin go ahead no <laughs> it's not hell because no. it's the same as I've heard the same argument with the Voyagers Cup uh, here in Toronto when that's when Toronto was winning the Voyagers Cup people would go, well it doesn't matter we're not making the playoffs we won the Voyagers Cup 18 years in a row <laughs> yeah you hear that talked about a lot when you're talking about TFC oh the TFC is such a successful team they won four straight Canadian championships no you don't hear that talked about ever <laughs> so yeah you, you got to look at your whole market and I think the Cascadia Cup is a brilliant competition that really speaks to the supporters and the Southsiders and and all of the affiliates out there that that are supporters groups um, it really speaks to, you know, Timbers Army and, and uh, uh, Emerald people, like all the Seattle people. Sorry, I'm forgetting supporters groups' names supporters, right now. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of them. So yeah, I like Gorillas FC. That's my favorite, Gorillas. Right. <laughs> anyway, um, it speaks to them, and that's great for them. But to argue that it's more important is just not really looking at the full picture and, and being a bit inside the bubble that we all live in sometimes that we follow MLS, the vast majority of casual supporters in there. And I don't use – people always get up, they get their backs up when I use that term casual supporters. I'm not being a – like saying there's anything wrong with being a casual supporter or being someone that's not like living and dying MLS 24-7, but that's – the reality that a lot of people don't live and die MLS 24-7. They don't know what things like the Cascadia Cup is. They don't even know what the Voyagers Cup is. They don't know what the CCL is because they don't live and die the sport. They just buy tickets and go watch the games and cheer for the teams to win in the games that they are, and they understand concepts like playoffs because they live in North America, right? Yep. Uh, did you know that, okay, just for the sakes of it, there's other cups like that in the Major League Soccer too. There's the Rocky Mountain Cup. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of rival podcasts, that I always I'll give credit to the uh, to the, uh, the the oh my god I can't get the name in my head the silent majority the um, vocal minority vocal minority sorry Duncan Duncan and Kristen yeah <laughs> sorry sorry guys the vocal minority they always say that the uh, Rocky Mountain Cup has the ashes of Don Denver in Denver in it which I always think is a good joke so that's a good joke Duncan. it's kind of mean though. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, that, that podcast has a different aesthetic to it. So, all right. Um, yeah, that's that. So we just we thought we'd talk about the Kitty Cup uh, and, and the Dallas women's full measure. So good for them. We've talked about their lack of scoring too much. So what are you going to talk about anymore? Uh, they scored twice, so they got three points. But they yeah. need to do more of that to make the playoffs. Yeah, making the playoffs is is a card. It, it's it's a ball in the lotto uh, to win the MLS Cup, and I think that it's probably highly unrealistic that the fifth seed in the West is going to do much. Yeah. But you never know, and so making the playoffs and, and having a chance to to win a couple games uh, in there, even if you it doesn't even matter if you win the MLS Cup or win the Western Final, if you make that second round and get three playoff games, that's going to have a considerable impact in the market. So it clearly is the be-all, end-all. And when you're talking about MLS, there's just no debate. Whenever we talk about those, these parallel competitions, there's no debate about it. The MLS playoffs are the most important thing because every team at the start of the year starts out with the goal and works towards it as their ultimate end goal of making the MLS playoffs and winning in them. That is the goal of every single MLS team. Therefore, it is the most important thing. There's just no debate about that. Yeah, and we have to always stress that point because people still have... But not still, but they have the, uh, the, the, what's the word? They actually have the feeling 
that the Champions League or the U.S. Open Cup or Canadian Cup are more important because of other tournaments like in Europe where you see the FA Cup, which has more than 100 years history, which has to be fair, the U.S. Open Cup as well. But if you're talking about like the Champions League, which is almost bigger than the actual league in North America, in Canada, it's not the case for now. MLS Cup is the begin, the end, and all of the trophy that are actually worth fighting for, in my opinion. And that's we always have to stress that point. Yeah. I mean, obviously, just like in, you know, there are parallel competitions in MLS, and that's neat. It, it combines us with, with the European leagues and the South American leagues that we know and love. But at the same time, it is a North American league, and, and it has a playoff structure. And that doesn't, like, I hate this argument. Oh, it's not right because the playoffs, too much luck. Well, yeah, there's a lot of luck in the playoffs. There's luck in a regular season, too. Yeah. It's just the format that this league plays under. And as long as the format plays, in, if this league plays under that format, it is the ultimate goal. So winning the MLS Cup is is what everybody should be aimed at. And there should never be a debate about whether winning the Cascadia Cup is more important than making the MLS playoffs because that's just simply not even remotely something that's worth talking about. Sorry. All right. Now that I've insulted uh, the hardcore supporters of Vancouver, Kevin, which I pretty much do daily anyway, (laughs) I'll let you say goodbye. Look for a post-game show probably the day after the Canadian men's national team game versus Columbia Live from Harrison, New Jersey, the Red Bull Arena. And until then, have a great soccer. Good things might come to those who wait, but not for those who wait too late. We gotta go. For all we know, just the two of us, we can make it. If-